Well, I bring greetings from the saints at Desert Springs Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. It is a joy to be here with you this morning. It has been a joy to be here this weekend with our dear friends, Asher and Brooke. Thank you guys for your hospitality. Thank you for this invitation and opportunity to be with uh, you all. Have you ever thought about what your last words might be? I know that might be a dark note to start a sermon on. If you knew that the next thing you said would be the last thing you said, what would it be? Some examples of some last words. Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. That's a sad thing for that man to say at the end of his life. Or Winston Churchill, his last words are said to be, I'm bored with it all. I can understand that. Augustus Toplady, who's the hymn writer for Rock of Ages and other hymns, he said, I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. Hallelujah. Well, Psalm 145 that we will look at today is a last word of sorts. It's not the last psalm in our Psalter. Certainly, uh, that's Psalm 150, a few psalms later. But it is the last one attributed to King David, who wrote around 70, or is attributed to writing around 70 of our psalms. And it's possibly not even the, the latest psalm that David wrote in his life, but it is placed in the Psalter in this, in this spot. Um, and it's not coincidental, but providential for us that we should take care to notice what both the human authors and editors of our Psalter, our Bibles, and the divine author wanted to say at the end of our great hymnal. So, if I could put Psalm 145 in one sentence for us to take uh, and boil it down for us, I would say that it tells us that our God is great, gracious, and glorious, and is worthy to be greatly praised in every generation across the globe. So one more time, the psalm in a sentence would be, our God is great, gracious, glorious, and is worthy to be greatly praised in every generation across the globe. So for the sermon time this morning, I see it in four stanzas. We'll take the first in verses one through three, where we hear David sing a song to a great God and of a great God. So point number one, if you're a note taker in our outline, will be a great God. First, you should know that Psalm 145 is what's called an acrostic psalm, with each line beginning with a different letter, a consecutive letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's like David was writing a nursery rhyme uh, for children. David uses this poetic device to help us remember, to drive deep into our memories the A to Z of who God is, what he has done, and why and how we should worship him. So notice how the psalmist begins in the first person. Verse 1, I will extol. David, the psalmist, isn't going to ask us or his listeners to do anything that he himself isn't already doing. He's a leader. 
So we've been considering family worship and family discipleship this weekend. And parents know that you can't lead your children anywhere that you aren't already going yourself. You can't train your children up to become something that you are not or you are not becoming yourself. So David knows this and he uses uh, his example as an example to follow. Parents, you are setting an example for your kids all the time, whether you know it or not. Kids are watching, and they're watching closely, and they're listening, they're listening closely. Uh, as Asher mentioned, we have five kids, ages 13 down to six, and it is amazing what they will hear or not hear, depending on what the situation requires of them. Uh, but I think in most cases, they are listening. Uh, so, in particular, we want to consider how they listen to us when we gather as a church. I love seeing and hearing all the children in the gathering today. It is the sounds of life. So, be encouraged, Cross Point. Your church is alive, and it is growing, uh, at least in one way. It is growing um, as, as children are here. And a word of encouragement to all of us. Parents, we know that it is a struggle to bring your kids to the gathering, but it is a, uh, a glorious and it is a worthy struggle to prepare your kids for uh, the gathering on Sundays and to bring them into the services, and I would commend it to you. And for the kids, it's wonderful that you're in here. We love that you're in here. We love that you're listening and that you're trying to engage on your own level, um, and they're going to grow in, in how they listen and engage. And for the rest of the church, we can all grow in our uh, ability to be uneasily distracted as little hands and little feet are making little noises through the service. So we can all, as a church, together uh, grow in that because we love to see kids in the service. But parents, your kids are watching you as, as you gather. You are modeling for them what it looks like to extol your God and King. Uh, so, a word to fathers. Um, if singing isn't your thing, and Asher mentioned, I'm a music guy, but if singing's not really your thing, um, then you're teaching your sons that singing is not for them, uh, or it's not, it's not something that men are required to do. So, I would encourage you, take up the good work of singing. You, no matter what your voice sounds like, your kids don't care, and honestly, the people around you don't care. Uh, and the Lord knows your heart. So sing out and model that for your children. And, uh, and your, your children, uh, I've noticed my kids are allergic to hypocrisy, right? Kids recognize injustice so fast. They see fairness everywhere or unfairness. Um, but particularly hypocrisy, if you say one thing and you do another, or if your life does not line up with your words, kids notice that. So, not just on Sundays, but parents, live a life that's consistent with your praise. If your only words of thanks, giving, and praise to God are on a Sunday morning, your kids are going to take note of that, and they're going to know that, that this faith is only a Sunday faith. Uh, so let us be commending to our children our faith all week long. Church leaders, elders, deacons, uh, Sunday school teachers, are you setting an example as David set uh, f 
for daily family and corporate worship. The church will never rise above its leaders in, in worship. So in private and in public worship, as David set an example, church leaders let us set an example uh, for our church as well. Notice in verse 2, David says, every day, every day I will bless you. So David is not a Sunday Christian. He's not just on the weekends. Uh, he does not reserve his piety and praise for the temple, but knows that God is too great, too glorious to be extolled only once a week. So he knows that God, our God, is worthy all day, every day, and maybe even twice on Sundays, uh, depending on what your church schedule is. But you can, you can worship at home tonight. Your private and personal worship will fuel the public worship and vice versa. So as you worship at home, that will encourage and fuel the worship as a church that will encourage and fuel the worship at home. So it should be a cycle that is ever growing and building on itself. In verses 1 through 3, I see it kind of like a purpose statement that David is making. This is what he's about. This is what he does. Uh, so let's ask some quick questions of these first verses. So who, who's he going to worship? His God and king. I think that's significant because who is David? David is king. He's the high king. So, but David knows. He knows the proper order of things. He knows who the king of kings and lord of lords lords really is. So what a humble example to us. Uh, so if you think that passionate praise and extolling and blessing God is beneath you, beneath your station somehow, uh, look at David's example as the king recognizing and praising his king. So that's who, how often, every day we mention that. It is a, it is a daily bread. It is, a, it is a rhythm uh, that he lives his life uh, in step with. So it's not just giving to God, um, but God giving himself to us. So we praise God, but he's also giving himself to us as we commune with him through praise. And David knows that. David knows that, he, that worship is good for him, that it actually helps him, like a, like a good diet and healthy habit shapes us into something, um, a healthy diet of praise and recognition of who God is and what he has done shapes us into the image of Jesus. And side note here, notice that there isn't any, uh, there aren't any notes of obligation or duty in these words of praise. But this is just an overflow of him delighting in God and who God is. I was thinking of it this way. Husbands, if we only ever considered the most lovely aspects of our wives, the most praiseworthy, the most lovely in every way, and never considered their flaws. Um, lucky for me, my wife doesn't have any flaws. So I, it's easy for me to just only think about her beauties, Right? Imagine the delight that that would stir up in us for our wives. David sets that example for us here. Because with God, there are only qualities. There are only lovely and praiseworthy attributes. So it is not, it is not a, a grind that David is going through. 
uh, but it is an overflow of him considering who God is. So I just want to commend that to you as we sing together as a church, as you sing with your families, as you consider God in your daily commute, um, to just enjoy him and enjoy who he is. So he does it every day. And then for how long? How long does David say he will praise, he will bless? Forever and ever. So if forever wasn't long enough, he added another ever onto the end of it. That's how long it will take us to begin to praise God. It will take eternity. His infinite worth demands it. So this is what, church, we're going to do forever. Uh, We're going to praise God. And this morning was a foretaste of it. And I can't wait to continue that for all eternity together. Jeremy and the musicians did a wonderful job of helping us sing of the wonders of our Savior and of our God and King. And we uh, look forward to continuing that forever because our God uh, deserves it. Uh, Spurgeon said, uh, Charles Spurgeon said that our praise of God shall be as, as eternal as God himself. So that's how long we're going to praise. So we might as well get used to it. How much? How much will David praise God? How, well, put a value on it. Well, greatly. He uses the word greatly. Uh, I love that word, greatly. I want to work that word into my just daily vocabulary more. Greatly. Like last night, Gent and Jill fed us some brisket and I ate it greatly. Uh, maybe a little too greatly, Gent. Uh, but it was fantastic. It was praiseworthy. But as we think about praise, praising God, he's great and so he's greatly to be praised. How much is that? How do we, how do we put a value on that? How do we greatly praise our great God? Our praise should rise to the level of its object. So let's think about it in terms of dimensions. So I'll break it down into heights, uh, depths, breadth, and length. As we think about praising greatly, we want to praise uh, in heights. We want to highly praise our God. In one practical way, sing the high notes. When Michael, our brother, jumped the octave on I Will Wait For You, let's do it, church. Let's go the octave and, and jump up and sing the high notes. And in another way, just sing loud. Your church, you sing loud. I commend you in that. Continue to grow in that. That is a witness to the watching world and to your children that you really believe what you're singing. Sing it loud. Sing highly. Let the volume get high. Let the notes get high and sing loud. That is greatly praising God. Then the depths. The depths we could consider as... uh, We praise deeply through the words and the depth of the truth and the doctrine and the songs. Do you notice all the theology that we just sang in all of those songs? I feel like we should all get honorary seminary degrees based on all all the doctrine we just learned. Uh, It was beautiful. We're considering uh, who God is, that God, the three in one. We're considering what Christ has done on the cross, heaven's peace and perfect justice, kissed a guilty world in love. You ever considered that one line of here is love? It's beautiful, beautiful truth, and it is teaching us something. So David here models that when he uses like all the words he can find to talk about God and praise him. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to extol him. I'm going to bless him, declare, commend, speak. He's like, 
he's burning through a, a Hebrew thesaurus just to, to play every note on the piano um, for how much God is worth. Saints, how we praise God communicates what we think he is worth. How we praise, not just what we're saying, not just that we are praising, but actually how we do it communicates how much we think our God is worth. And he is worthy. So we sing wordy songs, and I love that. We can also sing simple songs of deep devotion and dedication to God, but we sing wordy songs. So that's heights, depths, now breadth. So the, the width, deep and wide. Kids, you know that one? Everybody knows deep and wide. So we're going to the width here. And I'm considering this room, and from side to side, um, uh, every age, every part of the globe, from one end of Enid to the other, one end of Oklahoma, and one end of the earth to the other, our God is worthy to be praised from every people everywhere. We want to spread his glory broader and deeper. And so we do it greatly through great efforts of missions, of sending missionaries to unreached people groups in difficult places where they leave their family and their homes to go and tell others about Jesus because the people over there deserve to hear about Jesus and, and God deserves their praise. So breath, now length. Again, how, how long are we going to praise God? Forever and ever. And David moves us into the next section by considering how parents will commend his praise, God's praise, to their children and their children's children from one generation to the next. That is the length of our praise. I told the parents yesterday that we are playing the long game when it comes to our children. Uh, we are thinking about what legacy we will leave behind for them and their children and their children. So, that leads us to point number two, a generational God. So first, we see a great God, and now, uh, starting in verse four, we see a generational God. So if verses one through three were like a purpose statement, you can maybe say these verses, four through seven, are like a mission statement, what David is hoping to accomplish through this praise and work. Our God is too great to keep to ourselves. His praise must spread. And it starts in our homes. Kids are like their parents, right? You meet a weird kid, it's probably going to lead to a weird parent, right? We know. Our kids are just like us. They're little mirrors. They're little yakbacks. They just repeat what we do back to us, or they just show us our, our, some of our good and some of our not-so-good qualities right back to us. Um, so our kids are like us not only in looks or mannerisms, but they're like us in our loves. They love what we love. We teach them to love based on what we love. And we show what we love based on how we spend our time and our money. So it's just what we do. It is happening right now. And David knew this. So have you ever looked on the next generation and kind of looked down on them with some disdain? I'm considered a geriatric millennial. I'm like on the borderline of Gen X and millennial. So Gen Xers looking down on 
millennials or millennials looking down on Gen Z. Uh, I've, I've certainly been guilty of that. You look in those lazy millennials or those, those weird ADHD Gen Zers. Um, well, if you don't like the next generation, David is saying it's kind of your fault because it is our job to commend God to the next generation. So when we think about commending his works to the next generation, we're not just thinking of our kids that are in our homes that we have more control and influence on. We're thinking about the church. We're thinking about our schools. We're thinking about our county, our city, our nation. Um, we want to commend God to all in the next generation. So the next time you feel inclined to uh, look down on the next generation, uh, consider how you might commend God to them. And then commend, he, he uses that word, commend uh, to the next generation. Commending what? So verse 4, he's going to commend God's works and mighty acts. He's going to com commend God uh, for answering prayer. He's going to commend uh, God for his, for his great and, and small deeds. Everything that God does, uh, David wants to commend to the next generation. From daily bread to our deathbed, God is our sustainer and provider uh, from creation to the cross. Uh, God made us and he saved us. These are the works we want to commend to the next generation. If there are two truths that I could leave to my kids, they would, that they would leave my house with, that they would know that God made them and that God saved them through Jesus Christ. If they, if they could know, fully know and, and understand and appreciate those two things. That's why we use the New City Catechism in our discipleship of our kids. And it's a catechism that's a question and answer form of learning doctrine. And the first question of that catechism is, what is our only hope in life and death? And all of my kids can answer and say that we are not our own, but belong to God. That simple truth is the foundation for all discipleship, all training and commending that we do in the Hodge home. I want my kids to know that they belong to God and they do not belong to themselves. And we want them to know the gospel. We want them to know that God sent his son to save them. There's no greater work, no mightier deed than the Son of God dying on the cross to pay the penalty of sins for all who would believe. Consider that. In all of creation, in all of the history of the universe, there has been no greater act, there has been no mightier deed that we should give thanks for. So more than any political stance, more than any financial security or cultural value, I want to leave my kids with a spiritual inheritance. I want them to know the gospel. The best family traditions we can pass down is to know, worship, and enjoy God forever. In verse 5, David uh, commends the glorious splendor of his majesty, of God's majesty. The glorious splendor of your majesty. I wonder when the last time you considered the glorious splendor of God's majesty. This is not just what God did, his acts, his deeds of creation. This is who he is. This is considering what God is like. 
So not only his word, but his works. Uh, Not only his word and works, I'm sorry, but himself. Who he is, his, his quality, his character, his personality. We reinforce this often in our home with our kids um, through conflict. Uh, as our kids forget to be kind, they forget to be patient, they forget to be loving. We'll remind them, God is kind, God is loving, God is patient. This is what God is like, and we are called to be like that as well. Or when we look at, when we look at creation, we don't stop at the fact that God made things, Who made those mountains? Who made the trees? Who made the butterflies and the flowers? But ask why? Why would God make that? And get to the the answer for your kids. What, What kind of God would make a world so big and so beautiful? You ever think about how God made the world so much more beautiful than he needed to? Just, again, back to food. I love food. Food didn't have to taste so good. We didn't even have to eat food. He could have made Adam and Eve in the garden just take a pill once a day. Good. Got our sustenance. Now we can get back to work. Uh, And some of you are thinking, yeah, that'd that'd work out pretty good. I like that. Uh, Food, for some of us, feels like an interruption to our day. Like, oh, we've got to eat so I can keep living and then get back to the real stuff. Um, Do you ever consider that the deliciousness of food points to God's character and personality? He's so full of glory and goodness and beauty that he's just, he, he just has it to spare, and he just shared it with us in all of creation. So we commend not just his work, his word, who, what he has done, but who he is. And then in verse 7, it talks about the pouring forth the fame of his abundant goodness. I love that phrase, pouring forth the fame of his abundant goodness. You can almost feel David just bubbling up, and he's just blah just overflowing with praise um, as, he, as he writes it down. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness, goodness and righteousness. We have a, uh, a water park in Albuquerque uh, that we'll take our kids to during the summer, and it has uh, that giant bucket on top of like kind of the play place. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That fills up slowly, and then once it's full, it just boom, just dumps all over the, uh, the whole play place, the water play place. So your kids at first are shocked by it, and it's just, it's overwhelming. They don't know what to do, especially when they're little. But then after that, they start to anticipate it. They know every couple of minutes, this thing's going to fill up, and it's going to dump everywhere. And so they, they wait for it, and then they, they scream and uh, full of joy every time that bucket dumps out. We will say in our home that we want, like that bucket, We want to fill our kids with the gospel, with so much gospel, that if you shook them, they would just throw up gospel everywhere. (laughs) It's a beautiful image. I like that bucket. We just want them to overflow with who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. Just filling them up with it. And us, saints, the church here at Crosspoint, we want to be so full of God's glory and goodness and splendor and majesty that when we gather as a church, it's almost as if we're all bringing our praise buckets that we've been filling personally all week. And then we, we all join together in dumping them in one giant bucket of praise that then just overflows in worship 
in gratitude to God. Can you hear it? Can you imagine it? All of us bringing that together. It's, it's beautiful. We want our church gatherings to be such an overflowing, an outpouring of praise that someone from the outside, someone who's not a believer, would come in here and say, God is here. That's what Paul commends to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14. That's what we want our gatherings to be like. That's commending to the next generation. So at this point, uh, in the song, the song, the Psalm 145, it's like you can hear uh, David and the instruments swell, the melody crescendo, and ascend the scale to the highest note and the loudest note as we all sing the chorus in the following verses. The Lord is gracious and merciful. As our sister read the passage earlier, I could almost feel that as she got to this part. It's like, that's the hook. In, in songwriting, there's always, there's always a, a, there's a musical hook. It's usually a guitar part or a violin part or some, some musical instrument that plays a repeated part that shows up re- repeatedly in a song. And there's also a lyrical hook. The lyrical hook is the, it's like, it's what you want people to remember. If they only remember one line of the song, it's, it's that one hook. It's the, I will wait for you. It's the, uh, I need thee every hour. It's that hook. This is the hook of this psalm. Verses, if verses 4 through 7 were David's mission, then verses 8 and 9 are his message. The chorus that we sing, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As Jeremy read for us earlier, David steals these words from Exodus 34 when Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. And so God, David, uh, Moses is like, well, who am I going to tell them sent me? Who am I going to tell the people sent me? And this is the name that God gives himself. Who, who, who names themselves? The Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. It's also a, a reminder that David takes these words of Moses, puts them in his song to say a few things. One, that it's still true. It's still the same God that Moses and the Israelites trusted in the wilderness that we trust now. Um, that message hasn't changed. But also that David fills even his songs with Scripture. As he's writing Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is using Scripture in his songs. So we should too. And our songs this morning were filled with Scripture. And we should always have a Scripture uh, pouring forth from the songs that we sing. Um, But for those who didn't hear it the first time, let's read it again. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Notice the end there gets a little dark, gets a little serious. It's almost like a reverse commending. As we commend God's praise and worship to one generation, God will visit the iniquities of 
one generation on the next generation and the next. Um, that's terrifying. So, but how can those, how can, we, how can we reconcile these two ideas? That God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, bounding steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, will by no means clear the guilty. Forgive iniquity, won't clear the guilty. How, how do we reconcile that? Um, I think we all would agree that we're guilty of some, some sin. So how can the guilty be forgiven? How can God be both gracious and forgiving, but also just and not clearing the guilty? A debt had to be paid. The price had to be paid. The Father doesn't look the other way. He doesn't sweep our sin under the rug and just say, no, you're good. You're good. Come on. Come on in. You're good. Now, the sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. So how is that possible? Our sins were placed on Jesus on the cross and punished. He bore the punishment that we deserved for our sins that he never committed. The Father visited the iniquity of us all on his one and only Son so that we could be forgiven. That's why we sing amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? What gift of grace. Because we don't, we, don't, we don't earn that. You don't, you don't work your way to, to getting God of the universe to send his only son to die for you, pay for your sins. No. He did it out of his abundant, steadfast love. It was his love that motivated him. So have you received this gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ? So would you hear this message today and respond? This message that David gives that the Lord is gracious and merciful. You don't have to resist. Receive it today. I pray that you would. Pray that you, you would believe it, receive it, and then make it your message. Take it to the world, to the ends of the earth. You can. Right now, you can believe. And you too could be part of this, this glorious kingdom of grace that David talks about in this next section. So, our final point, a glorious God and king. The previous point for note-takers was a gracious God, point number three. That was our the melody of our song. The final point is a glorious God and King. In the final stanza of this song, David wants to remind us where this is all headed. My uncle was a, a Southern Baptist preacher for years, and he would say this all the time. It's a done deal, folks. He'd say, it's a done deal. Uh, considering God's plan of redemption and work of salvation through Jesus, it's a done deal. Notice in verse 10, David says, All his work, all his saints will. Not some, not most, all. They will praise, and all his saints will bless. From all time and everywhere. And what will, what will this song be that all his saints sing? Well, in verse 11, his kingdom, his power. His kingdom is forever, as Martin Luther wrote. So who is, who is this kingdom for? 
So we've got, we've got a, a, a broad casting of seed from David here that it's for everyone, right? You see him say in verse 12, the children of man. I think that's shorthand for all peoples. That is, that is who this kingdom is available to. So we invite you. We invite you every Sunday to become a citizen of heaven, to set aside all other allegiances and, and pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ as your Lord and King. We invite you to become a member of the kingdom choir and to sing with us of his steadfast love. So it's available to all. All can come. The call goes out to all. But it's only applied to some. Available to all, applied to some. So to who? I'm going to cheat and we're going to look at the last of the psalm. There's just a few phrases real quick at the end of the psalm. You can see in verse 15, David says, those who look. In verse 18, you see, all who call. In verse 19, you see, those who fear. In verse 20, you see, those who love him. So who gets a passport to this everlasting, glorious kingdom? Well, it's all those who look to faith in Jesus. Look in faith to Jesus. It's all those who call. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's all those who fear and revere the name. And those who love, love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do that today. Look, call, and love this gracious God. And what's this kingdom like? What's this glorious, splendid, everlasting kingdom What's that, what's that like? I don't know that we can fully comprehend it right now because our kingdoms of this world, our little kingdoms in our homes, our kingdoms in our communities and in our nation and our world, they're so broken. They're so ugly. They're so temporary. We can't fully comprehend the glory, splendor, and, and eternity and eternal lasting kingdom that is for us now and forever. It's a mystery, but it is beautiful. And it is something we look to in great hope. So Christian, a reminder that it's not the quality or even the quantity of our praise that ultimately makes God approve of us. But it is the quality and quantity of his steadfast love and mercy that proves God accepts you. So with the proof of that acceptance for all those who have faith in Christ, with that proof, uh, let us uh, sing out. Let us pour forth. Let us overflow with great praise to him in our homes and in our gatherings. So we mentioned last words at the beginning. Our last words um, often reveal our greatest desire and motivation in life. You're on your deathbed. What's the last thing you're going to say? It's going to reveal your heart, what you're about. Jesus' last words confirmed that. Confirmed that he did what he came to do.
When he was lifted up, was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, lifted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. Those are some last words that we can stake our life and eternity on. And that's why we can sing now. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray. Oh, great and gracious God and Father, we thank you for your word, your truth. Plant it deep in us now that it may spring up and overflow in fruit and in worship. Fruit of repentance and faith in Jesus. Fruit of joy in praising you in our homes and in our church. Fruit in loving the next generation by commending your kingdom and power to them. Thank you for this church at Cross Point. Thank you for its shepherds and elders. Cause them to shepherd well. Thank you for these saints. Help them to love and follow you. Thank you for the songs that we sing and how they stir us, stir in us affection for you. Do that now as we sing of your work in us through Christ in us for your glory and our good. Amen.